BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We're broadcasting live today from Bellevue College's campus and television studios in 91.3 FM KBCS, Bellevue, Washington, near Seattle. Of course, the station carries our show, carries all three hours of our show. And it's a great community station, community supported station, nonprofit station. We had a great gig last night in Seattle at Town Hall. It was a hoot. 700 plus people. Tuesday, I'll be at Berkeley in the First Church. And Friday, we'll be in Darien in Chicago at the Frugal Muse Bookstore. And then Saturday in Minneapolis at Next Chapter Bookstore. So a lot lined up for the show today. First of all, it can't happen here. Well, it just did. We're going to be talking about that in just a minute. What will save America? Is it going to be impeachment? Is it going to be the 2020 election? Is it going to be, I don't know, a a flaming pillar of fire, an act of God? I'm here with a studio audience, a peanut gallery. Hey, an official peanut. There you go. (laughs) Official peanut gallery. I mean that in the best sense. I hope you, some of you aren't old enough to know what the peanut gallery was, but we will be taking your calls throughout the program. So to start out being politically incorrect, right? When Andrea, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, these are concentration camps, these god-awful places that Trump and Pence and, and Stephen Miller and, well, in the beginning, it was also General Kelly and Kristen Nielsen, DHS secretary, They came right out and said it. I mean, they came literally right out and said, we're going to separate these families and we're going to create conditions for them that are so unpleasant, I think was the word Kelly used, that word will get back to families in Central and South America. Don't go there because you don't want to end up in one of these jails, basically. I mean, this was an intentional strategy on the part of the Trump administration, an absolutely intentional strategy. And so now AOC comes out and says they're concentration camps. The Republicans and the corporate media just freak out. Oh, my God, how did she say that? How could you, you know, they're not a concentration. I went around and around about this on Friday night on Bill Maher's show. It's the main argument against calling them concentration camps that's been laid out up to this point. And, you know, can it happen here? What's the next step? How far might Trump take this? Right. I mean, Are the next people to be interred going to be political prisoners? I don't know. And what's going to save America? I mean, is it going to take impeachment to stop this? Is the 2020 election going to stop this? What do you think? But in any case, the argument, the whole logical 
thread against calling these concentration camps concentration camps and instead calling them detention centers or internment camps or something like that is that there were concentration camps in Germany and we don't want to diminish the Holocaust and so you can't call them concentration camps. Well, actually there were two different kinds of camps. When Hitler decided to build the death camps, I think it was about halfway through World War II that they actually started putting this into place. Maybe it was a little before that. I apologize if I don't have the timeline absolutely right. But when Hitler decided to build the death camps, the order was to build every single one of them outside of Germany. So if they were ever discovered, they could blame Auschwitz on the Poles and Belsen Belsen on the Dutch, I think it was in Holland, and like they, all of the death, the actual death camps were not called concentration camps, they were called death camps, and their only purpose was to kill people, and they were built outside of Germany. The camps inside Germany, and there was something like 500 of them, I mean, they were all over there, most of them were fairly small, but there were some very large ones like Dachau. There were many, in any case, I don't quote my 500, it might have only been 100 or something, but whatever, there was a bunch of them. I mean, I lived in Germany for a year, I lived down the road from a small one, and we lived, you know, a half hour from Dachau, we visited it. And yeah, people died there, and in fact, at Dachau, they actually had a crematorium. And there was a couple of instances of, particularly later in the war, when prisoners of war were being brought in, where they just slaughtered them with machine guns. But they didn't have the Zyklon gas showers, right? These were not the giant meat factories just processing human beings to kill them. They were mostly labor camps. You know, Arbeit macht frei. Well, that's Auschwitz. Work makes you free. But that was the slogan of these concentration camps. And so good Germans, and again, you want the documentation on this, read William Scherer's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich and Milton Mayer's They Thought They Were Free. I mean, they just lay this out. And good Germans thought, oh, wow, we've got these, you know, creepy, undesirable people here in our country. And, you know, Hitler referred to them as rats and lice and things like that. Vermin, essentially, the same kind of language that Trump is using to describe people from south of the United States. So the argument is... You don't want to violate Godwin's law, right? Mike Godwin came up with this law that any argument about politics is eventually going to end up talking about Hitler. And the first person to mention Hitler loses. Well, somebody asked Mike Godwin, who's still around, what do you think about these concentration camps? And is calling them a concentration camp a violation of Godwin's law? And he said, and I quote, I think they're concentration camps. Keep in mind that one of their functions by design is to punish these individuals and families who are detained. So even the charged term is appropriate. I mean, here from this report uh, just came out, a two-year-old boy locked in detention wants to be held all the time. A few girls ages 10 and 15 say they've been doing their best to feed and soothe the clingy toddler who was handed to them by a guard days ago. Three girls told attorneys they were trying to take care of the two-year-old boy who had wet his pants and had no diaper and was wearing a mucus-smeared shirt when the legal team encountered him. A 14-year-old girl from Guatemala said she had been holding two little girls in her lap, and she said, I need comfort too. I'm bigger than they are, but I'm a child too. This is beyond grotesque. This is happening right here in America. It's mind-boggling how Essentially, evil this is. I lack another word. And I think that we have to call these concentration camps and we have to call out this administration for this brutal policy that they're pursuing. It is simply so wrong. Michael Scott Moore is an author who was kidnapped by Somali pirates. Well, he wasn't an author back then, but he wrote a book about his experience being kidnapped by Somali pirates for two years right, in Somalia. He was liberated by Navy SEALs in 2014. And he says that the Somali pirates gave me toothpaste and soap. 
while the Trump administration just successfully last week argued in court that there is no constitutional need to give these refugees toothpaste, these children, toothpaste, soap, or beds even. They're sleeping on concrete floors with tinfoil. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Tom Harmon University Book Club. Our book today is Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism by Ian Bremmer. This is from Chapter 1, titled Winners and Losers. It's time for a local revolution, the candidate told the roaring crowd. Countries are no longer nations but markets. Borders are erased. Everyone can come to our country, and this has cut our salaries and our social protections. This dilutes our cultural identity. Irene Le Pen's four sentences capture every important element of the anxiety rising across the Western world. The borders are open and the foreigners are coming. They'll steal your job. They will cost you your pension and your health care by bankrupting your system. They will pollute your culture. Some of them are killers. Le Pen fell short in her bid to become France's president in 2017. But her message remains compelling for the 21st century politics of us versus them. But this is not a story about Marine Le Pen or Donald J. Trump or any of the other populist powerhouses who have emerged in Europe and the United States in recent years. Spin the camera toward the furious crowd. There's the real story. It's not the messenger that drives this movement. It's the fears, often, if not always, justified, of ordinary people. Fears of lost jobs, surging waves of strangers, vanishing national identities, and the incomprehensible public violence associated with terrorism. It's the growing doubt among citizens that government can protect them, provide them with opportunities for a better life, and help them remain the masters of their fate. As of December 2015, just 6% of people in the United States, 4% in Germany, 4% in Britain, and 3% in France believe the world is getting better. The pessimistic majority suspects that those with power, money, and influence care more about their cosmopolitan world than they do about their fellow citizens. Many citizens of these countries now believe that globalization works for the favored few, but not for them. And they have a point. Globalization, the cross-border flow of ideas, information, money, people, goods, and services, has resulted in an interconnected world where national leaders have increasingly limited ability to protect the lives and livelihoods of their citizens. In the digital age, borders no longer mean what citizens think they mean. In some ways, they barely exist. Globalism, the belief that the interdependence that created globalization is a good thing, is indeed the ideology of the elite. Political leaders of the wealthy West have been globalism's biggest advocates, building a system that has propelled ideas, information, people, money, goods, and services across borders at a speed and on a scale without precedent in human history. Sure, more than a billion people have risen from poverty in recent decades, and economies and markets have come a long way from the financial crisis. But along with new opportunities come serious vulnerabilities and the refusal of the global elite to acknowledge the downsides of the new interdependence confirms the suspicions of those losing their sense of security and standard of living that elites in New York and Paris have more in common with elites in Rome and San Francisco than with their discarded countrymen in Tulsa, Turin, Tuscaloosa and Toulon. The globalists gutted the American working class and created a middle class in Asia, former White House strategist Steve Bannon told The Hollywood Reporter a few days after Donald Trump's 2016 election victory. The issue is now about Americans looking not to get effed over, end of quote. 
In the United States, the jobs that once lifted generations of Americans into the middle class and kept them there for life are vanishing. Crime and drug addiction are rising. While 87% of Chinese and 74% of Indians told pollsters in 2017 that they believe their country is moving in the right direction, only 43% of Americans said the same thing. In Europe, the European Commission and the unelected bureaucrats who enforce its rules have legislated for its 28 member nations. In recent years, they've failed to halt a debt crisis that has forced many Europeans to accept lower wages, higher prices, later retirement, less generous pensions, and an uncertain future, all while telling them that they must bail out foreign countries that have spent their way into debt. In the migrant crisis, globalist European leaders insisted that all EU members must accept Muslim refugees in numbers determined in Brussels, and barricades and a spike in nationalism were the result. I'm defining nationalism here as one form of us versus them intended to rally members of one nation against those of other nations. Were the wave of populist nationalism sweeping the United States and Europe only signs of globalism's failure? It would be bad enough. But there's a larger crisis coming. Many of the storms creating turmoil in the U.S. and Europe, particularly technological change in the workplace, broader awareness of income inequality, are now headed across borders and into the developing world, where governments and institutions are not ready. Developing countries are especially vulnerable because the institutions that create stability in developing countries are not as sturdy, and social safety nets aren't nearly as strong as in the United States and the, and the European Union. They face an even bigger gap between rich and poor, and the reality that new technologies will kill large numbers of jobs that lifted expectations for a better life will be much harder to manage. In short, just as the financial crisis had a cascading effect through financial markets and real economies around the world, so the sources of anger convulsing Europe and America will send shockwaves through dozens of other countries. Some will absorb these shocks. Some of them won't. As poorer people in developing countries become more aware of what they're missing or losing, many will pick up rocks. The book Us Versus Them by Ian Bremmer. So for Father's Day, Louise and I went out and climbed a mountain. Well, part of one. <laughs> and boy, am I sore. And, uh, you know, then I had to go back and sit in my, in my office chair. And, and I was, you know, I'm, I'm working on this next book. And it's like, ah, why? Because it's the X chair. The X chair provides customized support in an office chair. I mean, when it comes to supporting perfect posture, providing ideal back support, no office chair compares to the X-Chair. The secret is the X-Chair's dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL. This patented feature is what sets the X-Chair apart from every other office chair in the world. Ideal posture and support equals comfort, and when you're comfortable, the hours spent in the office honestly fly by. Feel the DVL difference for yourself. Try an X-Chair for 30 days completely risk-free. X-Chair is on sale now for 100 bucks off. Go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. You can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels for your X-Chair. That's xchairtom.com xchairtom.com Let's see here. I see I've got a couple of callers. 
You want to tell me your name and where you're calling from? This is Paula from Seattle, and welcome to our area, Tom. This morning on Democracy Today, they interviewed some Japanese-American, they were children, that were held at Fort Sill during the war. And those people, if anybody has a right to call these concentration camps, it's those people, and they are. And they were protesting down there on Saturday, and they were protesting with American Indians who had their ancestors had been held at Fort Sill. And if those people, those people, they have the right to call them concentration camps. And on Donnie Deutsch on Saturday night, he breaks AOC over the coals for calling them concentration camps. I mean, I didn't see it, but I heard that. In fact, Louise was telling me on the phone about this, you know, because we'd been talking about, gee, we need to catch Donnie Deutsch's new show. We haven't seen it yet. And she said, screw Donnie Deutsch. I'm not going to catch this. You know, if he's saying that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is like nuts for calling these concentration camps, you know, who needs it? People that were held in those, the the Japanese-Americans that were held in those camps, if they have the energy and the passion to travel to Fort Sill to protest, then the media should be there pointing this out to the country. Where is the media? I agree. I completely agree, and I'm totally with you. I wanted to talk a little bit about my thoughts on Donald Trump and his whole thing around Iran. This, I think, is kind of the ultimate abomination, what he tweeted, that at the last minute, he goes to his generals and says, okay, we're all set with this strike. We are cocked and loaded, which is a porn film expression, by the way, the NRA expression is locked and loaded. But, you know, I mean, this, him and Stormy Daniels, I mean, maybe she taught him. I don't know. But anyhow, he tweets out that we're cocked and loaded. And then he goes to his generals and says, how many people will die if we blow up these military installations that we're going to do in retaliation for their taking down our drone? And his generals say, 150 people, sir. And he says, oh, well, you know, they didn't kill any of our people. That would be disproportionate. So let's not do it. This is the story that Trump tells. It's obviously a lie. Donald Trump is doing what he has done his whole entire life. He's just making crap up and dancing his way through it. He learned as a reality TV star, he was taught by some of the very best acting coaches and uh, drama coaches in the world. I mean, NBC, this was their most profitable television program for a couple of years. They brought in really high-class talent, really high-quality talent to teach Donald Trump how to be a reality TV star, to teach him how reality TV works, to teach him that you've got to tease every segment. You've got to get the audience back next week. You can't leave them with a sense of, oh, okay, now I know what's going on. You've got to leave them with a sense of, oh my God, what's next? And you do that every every single week. And if you do that, you're successful. And he did that as a reality TV star. I mean, this is the second TV star, movie star that we've had in the White House. Ronald Reagan was the other one. And the Republicans love this. Oh, yeah, let's get somebody who can act, who can perform. Well, Trump can perform. He may not have a brain, but he can perform. And he understands drama. And what he did in this tweet set, lying about it, and the way that we know that he's lying, by the way, let me just give you a little backstory here. But what he did was he just set up a drama in which he himself is the hero. The backstory is that when the Pentagon puts together an operational plan for striking another country and presents that to the president, and we know this because, you know, we've seen these presentations, we've heard presidents talk about it. What I'm telling you is not anything that is some great secret from inside the government, in addition to being just common sense. 
they're going to say, okay, here's the deal. We're going to strike this missile launcher and we're going to strike this Air Force base or this airport and we're going to strike this uh, bunch of tankers. And it's going to take this many missiles. It's going to take this many hours to do it all. The risk to our troops and our people is going to be this, this, and this. The anticipated casualties will be this. That's always part of the presentation. And the anticipated response is this. Now, this is how we just laid it out for you. Mr. President, what's your decision? And by the way, if you're talking about starting a war with a brand new country, that should be Congress's decision. That's what the Constitution says. Only Congress has the power to authorize war. Now, tragically, after 9-11, Congress authorized unlimited war all over the world as long as it involves al-Qaeda. That was that authorization to use military force, the AUMF, that was issued in 2001, in the very last months of 2001, in response to 9-11. I believe it was December of 2001. I could be wrong, but it was right around that time. Giving George W. Bush the power to strike back against al-Qaeda, which he used in Afghanistan, arguably legally, and in Iraq, highly illegally, although internationally, even the Afghanistan strike was illegal. You know, before you strike another nation, you have to go to the UN. But in any case, Trump knew what the casualty count was going to be. And he's tweeting that we were all cocked and, (laughs) I can't get over this, locked and loaded, you know, cocked and whatever. We were all ready to strike Iran. And then the general said, well, 150 people are going to die. So I decided he's making himself a reality TV star again. Number one. Number two, concentration camps, I find it bizarre that when Democrats start to talk like Republicans, that is, they start to talk bluntly, they use words that shock people, that alarm people. Trump is doing it right now. He's used the word treason against the New York Times, for example. That, you know, when Republicans use this kind of language, oh, well, yeah, this is Republicans. When Democrats use this kind of language, you you said concentration camps? Come on, let's not have a war inside the Democratic Party around this. These are concentration camps. That's my rant for the day. Elizabeth in West Hollywood. Hey, Elizabeth, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Concentration camps for those children. It's just totally unconscionable having 11-year-olds take care of 2-year-olds and never getting diapers never getting any they don't even have beds they have to sleep on a concrete floor it's just it's totally unconscionable what kind of country are we and where are all these good christians they should be up in arms about something like this this is not the way you treat people and certainly not the way you treat you would children. think you would think yeah we have that. children who are in clothes right now that they soiled a month ago Two months ago, they have had no change of clothing. They haven't had a shower in months. They're sleeping on a concrete floor with a piece of tinfoil over them. It it, it is obscene. And yes, those are concentration camps. Elizabeth, thank you for the call, and thanks for listening to KPFK. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'm so upset over these concentration camps, if that's what we can call them, and I think we can. I hope I can get through this without breaking down. But I actually heard that the president or this administration does not want to give these children toothbrushes or soap and that they only get one meal a day and one cup of water a day. And I don't understand that. How can that be? I mean, where's the humanity in Washington today? What's going on? I mean, 
our Democrats and Republicans alike should go en masse on the steps of the Capitol and scream about this travesty on these children. These are innocent children. And Very I well can't. said, Carol. It was a court that ruled last week, I guess, that ruled that for children who are interred or incarcerated or whatever the word that they used was, there is no constitutional requirement. No, they don't have a constitutional right to a toothbrush or to soap. Right, That's right. That's what I heard. I actually was crying very hard last night. Where's the humanity? Where are these people in our government? I mean, what happened? I mean, I know that Trump is a moral mutant. I understand that. I expect nothing from him. But what about the other people in Congress? Does no one care about what we're doing to these children? I mean, what's going on, Tom? What's going on is that right-wing fascists have taken over a good chunk of our government. They've taken over almost all of the Republican Party. And they want to turn America into an authoritarian state. I mean, we've been moving in that direction since the Nixon administration. And they're actually pulling it off in some ways, Carol. And that's why it's so important that all of us not just get involved personally, but that we bring in our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our relatives, and A, expose them to media beyond the normal get-along go along, expose them to progressive media, but also do and say something. Carol, thank you so much for your call, your heartfelt call. It's great to hear from you. Pam in Seattle, what's up? Yeah, and this is your solar grandma. I totally agree with the last lady. And the right-wing fascists now passing all these anti-abortion, or the fact that they don't want women to have the right to choose, of course, birth control. I want to tie this with climate change, because if you read Paul Hawkins' book, he's got a hundred solutions in there for how we combat climate change. Two of the top ten are educating girls and providing birth control to women. So you have these fascists that are ready to just take us right over the cliff with their ridiculous laws, taking away our rights to choose, and it spells out for disaster. And I have eight grandchildren, anybody that understands why women need a right to choose, appreciates, loves their grandchildren, and all those other children down there in those cages, again, not being fed, not being taken care of in terms of their their daily needs is absolute fascist insanity, and we all have to find our own way. Grandma, stop crying in Pennsylvania. Write your letters. We're hitting the break, but you're absolutely right. Thank you so much. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller Report. We're reading from page 107. This is about the CNI and Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions' post-speech interaction with CNI is the uh, subtitle here. In the summer of 2016, CNI organized at least two dinners in Washington, D.C. for Sessions to meet with experienced foreign policy professionals. The dinners included CNI-affiliated individuals such as Richard Burt and Zalmay Khalilazad, a former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan and Iraq, and the person who had introduced Trump before the April 27, 2016 foreign policy speech, page 108. Khalil Azad also met with Sessions one-on-one separately from the dinners. At the dinners and in the meetings, the participants addressed U.S. relations with Russia, including how U.S. relations with NATO and European countries affected U.S. policy toward Russia. But the discussions were not exclusively focused on Russia. Khalil Azad, for example, recalled discussing nation-building and violent extremism with Sessions. In addition, Sessions asked Saunders of CNI to draft two memoranda not specific to Russia, one on Hillary Clinton's foreign policy shortcomings and another on Egypt. 
Item D, Jared Kushner's continuing contacts with Symes. Between the April 2016 speech at the Mayflower Hotel and the presidential election, Jared Kushner had periodic contacts with Symes. Those contacts consisted of both in-person meetings and phone conversations, which concerned how to address issues relating to Russia in the campaign and how to move forward with the advisory group of foreign policy experts that Symes had proposed. Symes recalled that he, not Kushner, initiated all conversations about Russia, and that Kushner never asked him to set up back-channel conversations with Russians. According to Symes, after the Mayflower speech in late April, Symes raised the issue of Russian contacts with Kushner, advised that it would be bad optics for the campaign to develop hidden Russia contacts, and told Kushner that the campaign should not highlight Russia as an issue and should handle any contacts with the Russians with care. Kushner generally provided a similar account of his interaction with Symes. Among the Kushner-Symes meetings was one held on August 7, 2016, at Symes' request in Kushner's New York office. The meeting was to address foreign policy advice that CNI was providing and how to respond to the Clinton campaign's Russia-related attacks on candidate Trump. Page 109. In advance of the meeting, Symes sent Kushner a Russia policy memo laying out what Mr. Trump may want to say about Russia. In a cover email transmitting that memo and a phone call to set up the meeting, Symes mentioned, quote, a well-documented story of highly questionable connections between Bill Clinton and the Russian government, parts of which, according to Symes, had even been discussed with the CIA and the FBI in the late 1990s and shared with the independent counsel at the end of the Clinton presidency, end quote. Kushner forwarded the email to senior Trump campaign officials Stephen Miller, Paul Manafort, and Rick Gates with the note, suggestion only. Manafort subsequently forwarded the email to his assistant and scheduled a meeting with Symes. Manafort was on the verge of leading the campaign by the time of the scheduled meeting with Symes, and Symes ended up meeting only with Kushner. During the August 17 meeting, Symes provided Kushner the Clinton-related information that he had promised. Symes told Kushner that, and then the rest of that is redacted by Bill Barr. Symes claimed that he had received this information from former CIA and Reagan White House official Fritz Ermarth, who claimed to have learned it from U.S. intelligence sources, not from Russians. Symes perceived that Kushner did not find the information to be of interest or use to the campaign because it was, in Symes' words, old news. When interviewed by the Special Prosecutor's Office, Kushner stated that he believed that there was little chance of something new being revealed about the Clintons given their long career as public officials, and that he never received from Symes information that could be operationalized for the Trump campaign. Despite Kushner's reaction, Symes believed that he provided the same information at a small group meeting of foreign policy experts that CNI organized for sessions. Number five, we're now on page 110. June 9, 2016 meeting at Trump Tower. On June 9, 2016, senior representatives of the Trump campaign met in Trump Tower with a Russian attorney expecting to receive derogatory information about Hillary Clinton from the Russian government. The meeting was proposed to Donald Trump Jr. in an email from Robert Gladstone at the request of his then-client Emin Agalarov, the son of Russian real estate developer Aras Agalarov. Goldstone relayed to Trump Jr. that, quote, the Crown Prosecutor of Russia offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia as part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump, end quote. Trump Jr. immediately responded, quote, if it's what you say, I love it, close quote, and arranged the meeting through a series of emails and telephone calls. Trump Jr. invited campaign chairman Paul Manafort and senior advisor Jared Kushner to attend the meeting, and both attended. 
Members of the Trump campaign discussed the meeting before it occurred, and Michael Cohen recalled that Trump Jr. might have told candidate Trump about an upcoming meeting to receive adverse information about Clinton without linking the meeting to Russia. According to written answers submitted by President Trump, he had no recollection of learning of the meeting at the time, and the office found no documentary evidence showing that he was made aware of the meeting or its Russian connection before it occurred. The Russian attorney who spoke at the meeting, Natalia Veselnitskaya, had previously worked for the Russian government and maintained a relationship with that government throughout this period of time. It's the Mueller Report, page 110. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. George in Long Beach, California. Hey, George, what's on your mind? A couple of things. Number one, Trump has no sense of consequences. I think that that's a symptom of fetal alcohol syndrome, and I think he has at least a mild case of it. Oh, that's an interesting thought. You know, it never occurred to me, but it does. You're right. I've seen fetal alcohol kids. We used to care for one. And yeah, the biggest disconnect that they have is between actions and consequences. And the other thing I wanted to address was the children. The ones who were separated from their parents with no record as to where the parents went, where the children went, that's a prima facie case for kidnapping. What's happening right now? Yes. Blatant child abuse. Where are the attorney generals, yep. the state attorney generals? Obviously, the Trump DOJ is not going to go after people for kidnapping or child abuse, but state attorney generals can. Why aren't they? I think all of the laws in all of the states don't say that you may not commit an offense against a citizen. They say you may not have committed an offense against a person. If right. you murder somebody, whether they're a citizen of the United States or not, you're going to be tried for murder. If you kidnap somebody or if you rape somebody or if you rob somebody, whether they're a citizen or not, whether they're here legally or not, whether they're even a criminal or not, doesn't matter. You know, it might mitigate the circumstances in some small way when it comes to sentencing, but basically it doesn't matter. These are crimes. George, you raise a great one. Thank you so much for the call. Jim in Los Angeles. Hey, Jim, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's on your mind today? Your caller, Carol, made me cry and why congressmen and women cannot go into every one of these detention centers stupefies me. But I called mainly, you remind me of my big sister sometimes or Thank she you. told me planes were in the air last night, and that is the beginning of World War Three. People don't get it. It's not 150 <sighs> people. No, this is yeah. the beginning of World War Three. You attack Iran, they unleash 
I and she's pro-Israeli and I'm pro-Palestinian. And I said Israel would be wiped off the map. She acknowledged it. Yeah, their Iron Dome can stop Palestinian bottle rockets, but they're not going to stop the Russian. Anyhow, this man is playing with fire. Yeah. One of the things that astonished me, Jim, I get it. And one of the things that genuinely astonished me was the U.S. did not realize that Iran had surface-to-air missiles that were sufficiently sophisticated that they could shoot down one of our drones. Now, if that's true, and we don't know what kind of weaponry they have, and we're thinking about starting a war with these guys, we are just flaming flat-out nuts. Jim, thank you so much. Adam in New Orleans. Hey, Adam. Thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hey, Tom. I've been trying to understand our increased bellicosity towards Iran, NATO, China. Uh, Looking at the U.S.'s military positioning, how the Trump administration is resetting alliances, in other words, trying to take emotion out of it, it appears that we're preparing for real and asymmetrical warfare against China by attacking Iran, a key source of China's oil. So echoing your position, it's all about the money, we seem to be queuing up for World War Three, seriously. Right. I mean, do you have some other read on this? No, I don't. Sean, what was the name of the guy who made that movie that we played a year and a half ago? We played a clip from it here on the program, and he came on. It was the title of the movie was "The Coming War with China." He was a British reporter. And he produced this movie. I know movie. you're talking about. Yeah, we can't remember his name. <laughs> Sean can't remember it either. But he made this movie that I watched. Louise and I watched it, and it's absolutely shocking. We have over 100 military bases basically encircling China. Pilger, John Pilger. That's right, John Pilger, P-I-L-G-E-R. You can Google the movie. I'm guessing it's probably out there now and on YouTube or whatever. And it was called The Coming War with China. And it makes the point that you're making, and it makes it really, really well. And and I think it's something that we need to take very seriously is, are we preparing for a war with China? Is this the last gasp of American empire? Is this the, you know, because China has largely displaced America as the manufacturing center of the world. And uh, that's not a good position to be in. And when empires start to disintegrate and lose their power, sometimes they, they reform into nice little countries like the UK did. And sometimes they lash out. Adam, thanks for the call. Okay. Prepare for mass arrests. This from the DuncanBanner.com via Democratic Underground. A demonstration protesting, quote, unjust incarceration of immigrants ended without incident or arrest following... Uh, Military police's insistence the event be moved off base property. Approximately 25 people, World War II, Japanese-American internment camp survivors and their descendants, plan to hold a news conference outside the Army base near Lawson, Oklahoma. That's Fort Sill. The group called SURU, T-S-U-R-U, SURU for Solidarity, were protesting a plan to temporarily house up to 5,000 unaccompanied children through September 30th. And then this is a quote from Dr. Satsuki Ina, who held a sign with a photo of her as a child in a World War II internment camp here in the United States. She said, and I quote, 75 years ago, 120,000 of us were removed from our homes and forcibly incarcerated in prison camps across the country. We are here today to protest the repetition of history. 
she added, these are American concentration camps. We were held without due process of law. We were charged without any evidence of being a threat to national security. And we were an, quote, unassimilable race. And they said that we were a threat to the economy. And by the way, these were also the things that, you know, not just Hitler, but pretty much right-wing fascists all over the country, all over the world have been saying. She said, these exact words are being repeated today regarding innocent people seeking asylum in this country. Again, quoting, until 1942, when Americans turned their backs on us while we were disappearing from our homes, our schools, our farms, and our jobs, we're here today to speak out, to protest the unjust incarceration of innocent people seeking refuge in this country. We stand with them and we say, stop repeating history. And I would point to the word refuge. These are not immigrants. These are refugees. These are people fleeing from disasters in Central America, twin disasters, the climate change disaster that's ruining the crops. They're having massive crop failures in Central America right now as a result of basically desertification of drought. And at the same time, you know, Reagan went in and just screwed up all three of these countries with this whole, oh, my God, you know, they've elected a government that's going to give health care and education to everybody. You know, we can't have that. And this is just bizarre. I mean, it, it goes beyond bizarre. Another thing that I wanted to bring up and also get your thoughts on, and Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, who was on Jim Vandehei's show on Axios on HBO, said that in his opinion, the Republican Party is now toast. His actual words are, they are finished. He said, white men were sold a complete bill of BS. It's just a yard of crap and it's just damn sad. He says Trump uses racism to whip up his mostly white base. Quote, he has blatantly expressed racist points of views and expressed them on multitudes of occasions during the campaign and such. And Newsom, by the way, runs America's largest state and one in which non-whites are the majority right now. California has sued the Trump administration a record 50 times, making arguably Gavin Newsom the de facto leader of the Democratic resistance. And so the question I mean, he's arguing 10 to 15 years from now, there won't be a Republican Party. I don't know if the Republican Party can recover. I really don't. And if not, then what happens? I mean, the Libertarian Party is even more extreme than the Republicans. Young people think it's so cool. Oh, yeah, you know, hey, legal prostitution, legal drugs. I've always said that Libertarians are just Republicans who want to smoke dope and get laid. It's really just that simple. I just don't know what can replace the Republican Party. I mean, we've only seen this happen really, I think, twice in our history. The first was, I mean, very, very early on. This was during the administration of John Adams, when the Anti-Federalists essentially reincorporated under the leadership largely of Thomas Jefferson, who was Adams's vice president. This was in the four years leading up to 1800. This was 1797 to 1801, the Adams presidency. And Jefferson renamed the party the Democratic-Republican Party, and then in the, in the 1820s, 1830s, they, they kind of gradually, over a period of about a decade, stopped using the word Republican and just called it the Democratic Party. It's the, the longest-lasting, oldest political party in the world, the Democratic Party, founded by Thomas Jefferson. And it's gone through a lot of changes. I mean, you know, after the Civil War, the Democratic Party was the party of Jim Crow and segregation, basically. And the Republican Party, for a while there, for about 10 years during and after the Civil War, was the party of abolition. Well, then the Republican Party got in the act with the Democratic Party, and and they were both, you know, supporting everything from redlining to absolute segregation schools and everything else. And then, you know, in the 60s, Jack Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson flipped the Democratic Party on its head. And as LBJ told Bill Moyers when he signed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, he said, 
You know, I may be handing the, Republic, the South to the Republican Party for a generation. Well, it turns out it's been, what, three generations since then? A generation is, you know, 19 to 20 years. So, and then the second time that we've rebooted a political party in the United States was the Whigs. The Anti-Federalists became the Democratic Republicans. And the Federalists, John Adams was a Federalist, right? And then the Federalists just lost election after election after, you know, Je Jefferson was a Democrat, Madison was a, a Democrat, Monroe was a Democrat. I mean, you know, it just continued. And, and so the Federalists just died out and they were replaced by the Whigs. And then the Whigs died out in the 1850s. 1856 was the birth of the modern Republican Party in Jackson, Michigan. And also in Wisconsin, there was something going on. And their first major candidate for president was Abraham Lincoln. But boy, has the Republican Party gone a, lo a long way from Lincoln. So if the Republican Party dies, what replaces it? I don't know. You know, I really don't. And if it's the libertarians, then frankly, in my opinion, we're actually moving toward more fascism. Because, you know, fascism is the definition. The definition of fascism is a merger of corporate and state interests combined with belligerent nationalism. The liber libertarians aren't big on the belligerent nationalism part, but the merger of corporate and state interests, that defines the libertarians. So what might replace the Republican Party if it goes down? Or can it reinvent You're itself? listening to the Tom Hartman Program. If you believe that you're not being snooped on or that nobody cares about your online data, well, then I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're wrong. Hackers, governments, and ad companies all slurp up your data. That's why I recommend getting the software that I trust to protect my online activity, ExpressVPN. Their apps use powerful encryption to secure your data. ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or phone, and then you use the internet just like you normally would. You download the app, click to connect, and you're protected. I never go online without ExpressVPN, and you shouldn't either. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN, costs less than $7 a month, and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Take back your online privacy just like I did with ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com Tom. That's expressvpn.com Tom for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com Tom. That's expressvpn.com T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com Tom to learn more. Welcome back. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world. Today's report brought to you by Goats for the Old Goat.com and Loving What You Do, the new book by Ellen Ratner. On the line with us from Talk Media News is Doug Christian. Doug, welcome back to the program. Pleasure to be here, Tom. I saw you the other day on uh, Bill Maher's show. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, I had a good time. So, Doug, what's up in the world right now? What's the latest news? Well, there's this conflict with Iran, of course, that is, I mean, it's a problem of our own making. We had the GCPOA signed with the idea that this agreement would eventually would allow the more moderate wing of the Iranian political establishment, this would include people like Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif, to gain control over people like Hassan Soleimani, who is the head of the Quds forces, or, of course, Hamani, who is the supreme leader. And what this does, in fact, by getting us out of the GCPOA, is it pushes the hardliners and actually emasculates the people that could be most moderating in control of our relationship with Iran. Yeah, it's a scary thing. It also, sanctions have never, ever worked anywhere in the world, as far as anybody can tell. All they do is make people 
pull together. You know, when we impose sanctions on Cuba, people pull together behind Castro. We impose sanctions on Venezuela, people pull together around Chavez and Maduro. When we had functional sanctions during World War II, you know, rationing and everything else, we pulled together. And Iran is doing this now. And you're right, they're pulling together around the right wing, the hard right, which is really, really tragic. What else is up, Doug? Well, of course, there's the crisis at the border right now. And, of course, there's this running debate whether or not what AOC said when she called the camps which children are left without any medicine or clothing or uh, toiletries or toothbrushes and are infected with lice, whether or not those are concentration camps. And, of course, I don't know what we call them, but they're pretty horrible. And Mike well, the, the origin of the term concentration camps is from a German word, which means bringing people to, uh, to bring something together and concentrate it into one point. And so the concentration camps in Germany were not the death camps. Those were located outside of Germany, very intentionally right, by the Germans. Poland. So that hit, yeah. Right, in Poland and Holland, and, and I think there might have been one in Czechoslovakia. But the concentration camps were separating people from society and concentrating them into one place. And that's exactly what we're doing with these refugees. Also, what I'd say is, is that, for instance, when I was at Dachau, one of the things you see a lot of were German school children. The schools teach history, which we're not being taught here in this country. Yeah, and yeah. I lived there for a year. In fact, we lived about a half hour to an hour away from Dachau and much closer to a much smaller concentration camp in the Frankenwald. Yeah, actually, their kids learn all this stuff. Our kids don't even know about the Native American genocide or, or the genuine horrors of slavery, frankly. We're not teaching. We have, you know, I don't think we've ever taught that stuff in our schools. Yeah, of course, because we have this kind of this maximalist view of American culture. And, of course, American culture has done so many things. But as, as you've quoted in your books and Howard's in, there are a lot of, uh, we've had a lot of problems, too. Yeah, well, we've always defined American culture as white culture and Anglo-Saxon culture, and that's been one of our huge mistakes. But anyway, what else is happening in the world, Doug? Well, of course, you know that Congress will be going off on break for the Fourth of July recess for a week. And uh, before they go, of course, Congress is working hard to try to uh, reconcile bills between the House and the Senate, budget bills. Of course, that is the primary function, besides oversight, of Congress, is budget. But, of course, there are uh, two very distinctive views about what budget means right now. And right now, of course, what we're seeing is part of the, what's happening with the children is they're being used as political pawns to fund various portions of ICE. And they're doing this by saying, well, Democrats are not funding humanitarian aid. Right. And this, is, this is what Mike Pence said on TV, right? We can't give soap and toothbrushes to children because the Democrats won't give us the money. I mean, just lying through his teeth, this guy. It's so blatantly political. It's, and, and, of course, the problem is these are children, after all. These are not political players. And to take advantage of such vulnerable people is, is outrageous, frankly. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you. Doug Christian with Talk Media News. Doug, thanks so much for dropping by today. You bet. It's great talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Our book today is Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny by Edward J. Watts. This is from the first chapter, which I think is really more like an introduction. This book explains why Rome, still one of the longest lived republics in world history, 
traded the liberty of political autonomy for the security of autocracy. It's written at a moment when modern readers need to be particularly aware of both the nature of the republics and the consequences of their failure. We live in a time of political crisis when the structures of republics as diverse as the United States, Venezuela, France, and Turkey are threatened. Many of these republics are the constitutional descendants of Rome, and as such, they have inherited both the tremendous structural strengths that allowed the Roman Republic to thrive for so long, and some of the same structural weaknesses that led eventually to its demise. This is particularly true of the United States, a nation whose basic constitutional structure was deliberately patterned on the idealized view of the Roman Republic presented by the second century BC author Polybius. This conscious borrowing from Rome's model makes it vital for all of us to understand how Rome's Republic worked, what it achieved, and why, after nearly five centuries, its citizens ultimately turned away from it and toward the autocracy of Augustus. No republic is eternal. It lives only as long as its citizens want it. And in both the 21st century AD and the 1st century BC, when a republic fails to work as intended, its citizens are capable of choosing the stability of autocratic rule over the chaos of a broken republic. When freedom leads to disorder and autocracy promises a functional and responsive government, even citizens of an established republic can become willing to set aside long-standing principled objections to the rule of one man and embrace its practical benefits. Rome offers a lesson about how citizens and leaders of a republic might avoid forcing their fellow citizens to make such a tortured choice. Rome shows that the basic, most important function of a republic is to create a political space that is governed by laws, fosters compromise, shares government responsibility among a group of representatives and rewards good stewardship. Politics in such a republic should not be a zero-sum game. The politician who wins a political struggle may be honored, but one who loses should not be punished. The Roman Republic did not encourage its leaders to seek complete and total political victory. It was not designed to force one side to accept everything the other wanted. Instead, it offered tools that, like the American filibuster, served to keep the process of political negotiation going until a mutually agreeable compromise was found. This process worked very well in Rome for centuries, but it worked only because most Roman politicians accepted the laws and norms of the Roman Republic. They committed to working out their disputes in the political arena that the Republic established rather than through violence in the streets. Republican Rome succeeded in this more than perhaps any other state before or since. If the early and middle centuries of Rome's Republic show how effective this system can be, the last century of the Roman Republic reveals the tremendous dangers that result when political leaders cynically misuse these consensus-building mechanisms to obstruct a republic's functions. Like politicians in modern republics, Romans could use vetoes to block votes on laws. They could claim the presence of unfavorable religious conditions to annul votes they disliked. And they could deploy other parliamentary tools to slow down or shut down the political process if it seemed to be moving too quickly toward an outcome that they disliked. When used as intended, these tools help promote negotiations and political compromises by preventing majorities from imposing solutions on minorities. But in Rome, as in our world, politicians could also employ such devices to prevent the Republic from doing what its citizens needed. The widespread misuse of these tools offered the first signs of sickness in Rome's Republic. Much more serious threats to Republics appear when arguments between politicians spill out from the controlled environments of representative assemblies 
and degenerate into violent confrontations between ordinary people in the streets. Romans had avoided political violence for three centuries before a series of political murders rocked the Republic in the 130s and 120s BC. Once mob violence infected Roman politics, however, the institutions of the Republic quickly lost their ability to control the contexts and content of political disputes. Within a generation of the first political assassination in Rome, politicians had begun to arm their supporters and use the threat of violence to influence the votes of assemblies and the elections of magistrates. Within two generations, Rome fell into civil war, and two generations later, Augustus ruled as Roman emperor. When the Republic lost the ability to regulate the rewards given to political victors and the punishments inflicted on the losers of political conflicts, Roman politics became a zero-sum game in which the winner reaped massive rewards and the losers often paid with their lives. Above all else, the Roman Republic teaches the citizens of its modern descendants the incredible dangers that come along with condoning political obstruction and courting political violence. Roman history could not more clearly show that when citizens look away as their leaders engage in these corrosive behaviors, the Republic is in mortal danger. Unpunished political dysfunction prevents consensus and encourages violence. In Rome, it eventually led Romans to trade the Republic for the security of an autocracy. This is how a Republic dies, mortal Republic. Welcome back. Paul in Cary, North Carolina. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Great show, by the way. And uh, the topic I wanted to hear your opinion on is I hear a lot of people talking, specifically Bill Maher. I believe he said that he don't believe that Trump will leave after the 2020 election. And I just wanted to get your I'm predicting that I believe Mr. Trump is going to if he loses that election, he isn't going to leave. In fact, I think he's going to cause a divisive effort to get his base riled up to where they will probably hit the streets or cause some type of chaos that will say, no, we want this guy to be the president. Like, he'll kind of force the issue. What do you think about that? I'm very concerned about it, Paul. I am very, very concerned about it. In this book, The Turner Diaries, that animated Tim McVeigh and an entire generation of right-wing terrorists, this book came out in the 1970s, and this guy wanted to turn America back to its white Anglo-Saxon roots, right? And right. which is language that you'll hear from these white supremacists right now. And so what he did in this novel, this is a novel, but it's a novel that's been read by all these guys, right? In fact, if you go back and you look at a lot of these mass killers who are motivated by this kind of thing, they, the Turner Diaries is part of their collection. In this book, the hero of the book blows up a federal building in Oklahoma City. The response to that from the federal government, whoever was president at the time, decides, okay, enough of this already, we're going to put an end to this, and clamps down on people having access to guns and starts sending out the federal police, the FBI and whatnot, going door to door, taking people's guns. In response to that, all the good white Christian gun owners rise up against the government, overthrow the government, start a mass slaughter of people of color and Jews, and at the end of the novel, the last guy standing is, you know, or the, the, all the white people are the last ones standing with their guns. And this bizarre fantasy is widely shared in right-wing circles. And if Donald Trump were to refuse to leave the White House after he loses, or if he does leave the White House because the Secret Service says, hey, you know, you want to leave or you want to go to jail? Or, you know, if you, 
If he does leave the White House, what I think is a more likely scenario, Paul, frankly, is that he will leave the White House and then he will get his own platform. He'll get his own show on Fox. He'll have the Twitter. He'll have his followers. He'll be doing rallies all over the country. He's going to launch a movement very similar to the way that the National Socialist Movement was launched in the late 1920s in Germany. And that's my opinion of what's going to happen. I, I fear that this could lead us right into a civil war or into fascism. Yes, sir. And I thank you for that. But I'm saying I'm going to call it now. I mean, when 2016 election, I, I was one of the only other few other than Bill Maher that agreed and said I believed that he was going to win that election because of being as a, a brown person with Asian and Hispanic background. Uh, just watching from a third perspective, this country has I didn't come to this country being brought by my stepfather, who is white. And he told me, you know, he's like, hey, you come here, you have opportunity. Now, I've taken advantage of that. But watching what's going on, it's very scary to see that people are okay with what I feel like they're just standing by, just kind of waiting for, for that kind of like the hammer to drop or some hero or something yeah. to show up. And I don't think that's going to happen. I think we have to stand up as, as people who believe in the democratic system. And- yeah, spot on. We cannot allow that. John in Kenmore, Washington. Hey, John, uh, thanks for listening to KBCS. Hey, What's up? We, you have the hey, last minute, by the me. way, I think, of the show. I am a perfect example of this socialist education. I went to college in California when Ronald Reagan was governor between 1966 and 1974. I got a free education. I didn't pay a penny tuition, and we had that wild socialist governor, Ronald Reagan. That's an argument everybody... Well, he ended that, Reagan though, you know. Governor. When people make that argument... You know, we can just come back and say Reagan was governor of California. No tuition. How is that so socialist? Was Ronald Reagan a socialist? But Ronald Reagan ended free education in California, did he not? Or did he just initiate the process that led to it being ended during the next governor? My recollection is that he, in fact, Jerry Brown was governor after and and, uh, he didn't. As far as I know, I like I graduated in 74. So. Um, yeah. And that's year well, maybe it was when he was president office. that he was talking about that, because by that time in the 1980s, free college in California was pretty much gone. And, and Reagan was asked, you know, shouldn't education be free? And he said, why should I have to pay taxes for young people who are protesting my policies? That was, well, he that used was, to say that. Know, his... I remember when uh, and, and Hayakawa, Senator Hayakawa was saying the same thing in those days. So, yeah, wow. yeah. Amazing stuff. John, thanks a lot for the call, and thanks for listening to KBCS. Thank you all for being with us today. Thanks to our studio audience here, our, our official pinna gallery. Yeah, great. And uh, we'll be in San Francisco tomorrow. I'll be doing my show tomorrow and Wednesday from AM 910. And tomorrow night, I'll be in Berkeley at the First Church. So check that out. All the information's at TomHartman.com. And uh, you know, should be links to the event. If they're not, go over to 910 AM and uh, their website. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It really does require all of us, you and me, participating. And by the way, it's therapeutic. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.